Hey everyone, this is Justin Patton. The producer Evan kindly mentions at the end of every episode and whose disembodied voice you hear in every intro. Glad we could finally meet. I just wanted to give a few caveats about this entry of Not Alone. First off, this week we are releasing part one of a two-segment interview with a guest we had on our show. The conversation went on a lot longer than we had initially expected, but it was really engaging and informative, and so we have decided to split it into two parts, the second half of which will release approximately a week from when this uploads. The second caveat, at several points in the conversation, we mentioned sexual assault. We don't discuss it in great detail, but if that's a painful trigger for you, then you might want to skip this episode. Our guest today is our friend Greer. Greer is a counselor who lives in a college town and specializes in working with college-aged adults. She has a lot of experience walking with others through substance abuse, and we're really excited to share this conversation with you. So without further ado, here is Not Alone, featuring our friend Greer. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another wonderful episode of the Not Alone Podcast, the podcast that explores faith and well-being in just how long two co-hosts can put up with me. And we are thrilled to be back with another episode. Lindsay and Michael are here today. Please say hello. Hey, everybody. Good to be together again. And with us today, Evan, we have a special guest, right? Yes, we do. We have one of my favorite people on the planet Earth. That list is large, but she does still make the list. Don't worry. We have <laughs> one way we to have... butter up a friend right there. <laughs> we have my beautiful, wonderful friend, Greer. Greer, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Evan. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks so much for deciding to join us. Greer and I met in the state of Alabama, which neither one of us are from. But we somehow were able to meet. What's the first time we met? Was it, was it Ultimate Frisbee? Was that it? We, um, we met in a hotel lobby uh, during a tournament in uh, Mississippi. <laughs> there we go. So, so that is the start. Just, you know, that's where every budding friendship and deep personal connection you have in your life begins is in a hotel lobby in Mississippi. Yeah, in Jackson, Mississippi. <laughs> if I'm honest, those are my favorite friendships, though. The ones, the most that, random ones. The most random ones. Yeah, yeah. My best friends from college happened to pick me up in uh, in the middle of a rainstorm and give me a ride in the middle of the rainstorm, and then we became friends for life. So those are the good places, the random places. I love it. It's so true. Well, we got to spend a lot of time together in the great state of Alabama. And uh, while you were in school. <laughs> I feel like there was a pregnant pause after you said the great state of Alabama. <laughs> well, one of us got out. One of us did not. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. So Greer, tell us what you're up to in Alabama and... Uh, Give us a little background. So you you went to did your undergrad at the University of Alabama and you did some extra schooling, right? I did. So I did my undergrad. My bachelor's is in biology, and uh, I was <clears throat> supposed to go on to be a marine biologist and do animal behavior, um, and I did none of those things. And so that's kind of where our paths crossed. Was I was finishing my undergrad. I met Evan. Um, he was really the 
reason I got into ministry. So I took some time off between school, did ministry for three years, college ministry at the University of Alabama, and then went back to school at the University of Alabama. It's a theme in my life always. (laughs) Um, And went there and did my master's in marriage and family therapy. And then once I graduated, I opened private practice um, here, which I'm still doing. And then I actually taught at Shocker at the University of Alabama (laughs) for two years. Um, But I no longer teach. I just do private practice, um, which is super exciting and I love it. Um, So this June will be three years. Congratulations. That's exciting. I I am so grateful to meet another therapist uh, that their undergrad degree was in absolutely nothing that they do now. So um, I I'm literally I'm happy for that. <laughs> well, I was listening when I was listening to you talk about yours being in math. Um, I was thinking like, do I ever use mine ever? Um, and a couple of months ago, I was working with a couple, and they don't have great communication skills uh in conflict and in the in the office they like kind of solved this problem together and out of habit I made this clicking noise like I literally (laughs) and and the husband kind of looked at me and I was like hey I'm gonna (laughs) I'm gonna say this and if you never want to come back and see me ever again that would be valid Uh, but when working with whales and dolphins you capture a natural behavior, you click it or you whistle it and then you reward it. Right. And then that's how they learn. Cause I work. So background, I worked at SeaWorld too. And so that's how you capture like natural behaviors and then turn them into these like specialized. I think, I think you need to market that in for your private practice and like your unique niche. I mean, not many people uh, would help couples quite in that way. Yeah, I never, um, I will be honest with you, I've never done it before that day and I've never done it after. <laughs> <laughs> um, luckily, uh, I had, luckily, I had a great relationship with them. Like I had worked with them for a long time. Um, they both loved it. Thank goodness. Because that could have been a major <laughs> bomb in that sense. I don't even know what I would do if my therapist clicked it. <laughs> and it wasn't even like, you know, can- so subtle. Um and I, um, as soon as it came out, it was just this Can moment we, of like. I think we've reached the point where we have to hear it. It was literally just like a, like a, it was just me making a noise. Cause in my head, it was like, that's like, that's what, that's the behavior that I want. Like what you guys just did is what I want. And my natural response was like, yeah, grab that. Like grab that real fast. Oh my gosh. Lindsay, do you have a clicker in your office? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm starting to think about what. Oh, I'm sure that I've had some of those moments in private practice as well. There are things that occasionally come out or reactions you make that yeah. you you try to hide all of yourself as much as you can and not disclose. Um, but there is sometimes my human self just like sneaks out real fast. Well, so what she's trying to say is the her method of therapy is to give them a word problem, a math problem, a math word problem. <laughs> and they have to solve it together. And that alone will bring any couple, either it will destroy their marriage or it will save their marriage. You just don't know. 
but it's, yeah. it's just done. Yeah. Is that go? Your relationship is on a train heading east at 45 <laughs> miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> <That's right. laughs> the tracks are out in six months. Oh, How long will goodness. it take you to turn it around? <laughs> Oh, it is wild how the things that shape who we are. Oh, I love <laughs> oh, it. I, don't know. I think, but I'm going to start clicking when my kids do something good. Oh, I'm totally. just going well, to see what happens. You have to click and then reward. Like that's the second piece of it, right? Like okay. you click so that they they associate that noise with that, but then you have to you have to reward it in some way. Yeah. I think in my house that would huh. be gushers. <laughs> oh, a hundred percent. A click yeah. and then I give out a gusher to my housemates. <laughs> That would be great. And Greer, I think uh, if I'm my memory is correct, you are the first therapist that we have had as a guest on this podcast as well. That's true. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yay. I was like, well, Lindsay's one. So that's a great start. <laughs> Lindsay's looking at me like, I guess I'm just the guest you. here every week. <laughs> she does feel a bit like the uh, outlier in in some ways. She's... she's Waving her hands up together. Goodness. (laughs) Waving her hands wildly. Uh, Well, one of the things that we have been talking about in this series and uh, why we're so grateful that you're on is that we've been talking about some of the challenges that have arisen with substance abuse and challenges around addiction, especially in the pandemic times, because it's been a huge issue. We've been reading all sorts of articles about it and discussing them. uh, And I was like, Greer is going to have such a great perspective on this. And she's got such great experience um, that she could really speak into this well. Can you give us a little bit of a background on um, that kind of segment of some of your practice and education and experience? Sure. So um, I guess kind of the background is I, so I have personal experience, not in the sense that I'm in recovery, but Um, I've had some family members who have struggled with substance abuse. Um, I have been in relationships that have included substance abuse. Um, and prior to being at Alabama and actually prior to working in ministry, I had only seen the active addiction side, not the recovery side. Um, and then actually through meeting Evan, I met, um, our mutual friend Lee and, Lee had already kind of started this program that partnered the campus ministry that we worked for along with a group called at the time called the CRC, which is the collegiate recovery community. Um, And there's a handful of them at different campuses, not at every college campus, unfortunately, but um, it's for students who have six months or more of continued sobriety. And so he had started partnering with them um, really just on like as a way to kind of love on people who were in recovery and to love on these students but he also partnered with them to do sober tailgates during football season. Um, And he had created a kind of a ministry area around that. And so I had through conversations with Evan, he knew I had a passion for it. So then he invited me to do campus ministry um, and Lee invited me into that area. And I really fell in love with it and ended up taking a job on internship that turned into a job at that same ministry um, and then kind of through the people there made some connections and there's a lot of overlap. Tuscaloosa is not a huge city. Um, And so there was some overlap in the worlds of ministry and the worlds of recovery. um, And 
got plugged in with some folks who were also tied into higher education, um, who encouraged me to go back to school, which I swore up and down I would never do. Um, <laughs> so then I did. And, uh, and I fell in love kind of with the idea of recovery and working in that world. Um, and it's actually kind of my path has been maybe a little bit wonkier, a little bit different than I thought it was going to. Um, cause I fell, I fell in love with like early, maybe like year into sobriety recovery. And then when I was in grad school, I worked at a treatment center that was an outpatient treatment center. And so I was working with clients who had anywhere from like 24 hours to maybe two, three months at best of clean time. Um, and then after, after graduation, some of those folks that I had met that were in early recovery were starting to kind of not transfer into, but were building time up to be in longer recovery. And they kind of followed me to private practice to continue doing therapy. Um, and that I ended up kind of falling in love all over again with longer recovery, um, longer periods of recovery. And so the clientele that I see now is not not that early stage as much anymore. Um, I don't see a ton of like early intervention, but the majority of what I get to experience for the clients that have the substance abuse background is either six months, a year plus a clean time, or I work with a handful of like significant others who have spouses or partners um, or even children who are going through the recovery process. I think the neat part of uh, the journey as a therapist is uh, getting to glimpse all of those pieces of somebody's life. And um, in different seasons, we've all worked more in the crisis and immediate setting, and then uh, sometimes walk with people further out from that moment. Um, So it sounds like your experience of being at all of those places on the journey has led you to find a sweet spot right now of what part of the journey um, you're uh, enjoying or uh, feel like is the right place for you to walk with people right now. For sure. And I, I think I wouldn't be surprised kind of knowing myself if that season didn't change. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I don't, obviously I don't know when, um, but what's interesting is I have found myself um I don't want to say uncomfortable, but it's really out of my comfort zone now when I have a client who is either early recovery, like early, early month or less, or if I'm working with a client who is in active addiction and doesn't have a desire to get sober, um, I find myself, I don't want to say getting defensive, but I'm quick to be like, no, 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 no. I know the fix. You know, like I know how to get you to long-term recovery. And it's just so not about me. You know, like that's just not, I get to be there with them, not not as them. Um, but I think I get, I don't want to say frustrated, but I think I get almost like impatient, you know, like for them, like I want that recovery piece for them. I think that that's so true about a lot of parts of our lives is that we see the hope and the potential Mm -hmm. in so many people that, uh, we get excited about helping people get further down the road Um, and sometimes, and as we've talked about on this podcast, sitting where people are in the moment, um, 
is a helpful reminder for us to get back to uh, that our hope may give us the energy to do that long-term, but not everybody's there at that moment and holding those intentions so that we can hold that hope for them while uh, sitting in the place where they might not be there yet. Yeah. And I had, I had an experience kind of, as you were saying that I had an experience yesterday where I've been working with a client for about two years now, a little over two years. And she has been kind of in and out. I'm going to say of early recovery. Um, Cause it doesn't, it, she kind of has these seasons, you know, and then it's, Oh, I'm doing good. I don't need it anymore. Um, and yesterday she's, she's in a place now where she has to make a decision on if she's going to be sober or not. Um, Cause she's having a lot of consequences because of some substance use. And um, it, it almost like we had this role reversal because she was, she was kind of doing this like future tripping where for her sobriety meant like, I'm going to have to quit my job. I'm going to have to move. I'm going to have to give up everything. I'm going to have to give up my friends, you know, and she was, she, you could kind of see her starting to spiral. And I found myself almost not even thinking about it, but I found myself saying to her, that's not what I said. Right. Like what I've asked you to do is for the next week, just not drink. You know, like, I'm not asking you, I'm not even asking you to get a sponsor. I'm not asking you to work the steps. All I'm asking you to do is to not drink this week and go to some meetings, you know, like, and that's it. Like, that's, that's baseline. And it was having to kind of bring her back and get her present when a lot of times I find myself almost thinking ahead, not really vocalizing it to them, but, you know, thinking ahead for them. What does this look like? What, how will that impact their life? And her and I kind of switching yesterday was a good, was a good reminder for me of just being present there with them or bringing them back to present instead of kind of future tripping with them. Mm. That is really, that, that kind of catches you off guard too, you know, when you have that realization. Yeah. Mm -hmm. As far as recovery is concerned, can you explain a little bit to the listeners who may not be as familiar when we say recovery? What does that mean? So recovery, well, that's, yeah. So that's a great question um, because I think that that answer is going to vary a little bit depending on who you're talking to. Um, For some people, recovery will just be sobriety or like abstinence, no use of their drug of choice. So whatever, maybe whatever substance um, was causing the most problems in their life. For a lot of folks um, who are maybe in a 12-step program like, Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, um, a lot of them are going to say that you would want to be considered in recovery. You want complete abstinence from any substance. Um, And so outside of just the drug of choice. So for example, um, if somebody maybe has an addiction to cocaine, it wouldn't be just giving up cocaine. It would be giving up cocaine. It wouldn't be drinking. It would be, you know, complete abstinence from any substance that's going to be mind altering. Um, And so it, for me, it, I don't, I'm not in the world of recovery, meaning that I don't, um, I don't live a sober lifestyle or I'm not in a, I'm not a member of an, of a, like an A program. It's like a 12 step program. Um, and so for me, a lot of times I find myself kind of asking my client, like, what is recovery for them? Or what is that definition between them and their sponsor? Um, because if they're looking for, accountability or they're looking to be able to process what recovery and sobriety means for them. I've got to know what that means. Um, and 
if they're not working a program, if they're not working a 12-step program, or if they don't have, you know, they didn't just come out of a rehab or a treatment facility, um, a lot of times it'll be me kind of challenging to say, do you not, if they, if it's, if they only want to give up their drug of choice, is that because they've worked with a professional to make that decision? Or that's just because that's what would be maybe easier or feels good, you mm-hmm. know? And so there is, there is some processing around what their definition is and then how, to, how do they get to that definition? I guess I didn't realize that it was so individualized. Um, I, I have learned a lot more over the years around addiction and recovery uh, and it, I think the first thing that most folks think of is probably AA, right? Alcoholics Anonymous, and that that is like the only option for folks. Uh, and I, I just never realized how far reaching it was. Um, as I grew up, uh, I started to have conversations with folks who had family members who were in recovery and began to understand more the dynamics around community and how uh, substance abuse and addiction is far reaching, but that was a real shock for me. Like it didn't make sense to me when I was younger that somebody else could have such an influence on somebody else's life in that way. Uh, so to hear that it's that the treatment plans are just as individual as the challenges are um, makes a lot of sense because you do get that personalized approach and you have to make that determination yourself. Um, you mentioned a sponsor. Can you, can you explain a little bit of what a sponsor is? Sure. So, well, I, can I, I actually want to back up real quick because I, I do want to say this part, like it, it is individualized because of the fact that I'm in private practice and because I'm not the one that works at a treatment facility, mm-hmm. right? So I have the ability to make a treatment plan that is personalized for them or for somebody who is struggling with substance abuse, because typically if they, for the folks that I see who are working on recovery, they have other people in their lives who are helping shape that as well. Oh, right. Cool. And so I would say like the large majority are going to tell you that sobriety means complete abstinence, right? Like that's going to be a more accepted kind of overarching idea mm-hmm. where treatment, a treatment plan for somebody, for one of my clients gets to look a little bit more individualized because of one-on-one treatment versus like a group setting, you know, like an AA meeting, that's going to, that's not a one-on-one setting, you know what I mean? So it doesn't get to be as individualized. It gets to be, that gets to be more group core beliefs or like group views on it. So I don't want to, I don't want it to sound, (laughs) I don't want it to sound as if AA is like a pick your own adventure on what you want it to look like. Right. (laughs) Which of the 12 steps do you want to start? (laughs) So it it gets to look individualized in my office because that's a one-on-one setting. Not as much. Part of why it gets individualized in your office too, Greer, is that, uh, different, there's different influencing factors of what leads somebody to use a substance to the level that uh, is impairing their life and they want to be in some form of recovery. And so for every person getting to the root of that is going to look a little bit different. Um, And the same way that if any of us walk into a hospital and there's kind of quick triage and in some ways everybody gets the initial same initial assessment um, and then gets connected to different things. Uh, It is the same way in with substance use and recovery is that uh, step one is if you are in a place that uh, you have used at an excessive level, that there is medical concerns everybody's going to be medically stabilized somewhere 
uh, inpatient before then you go to the next steps and then start nuancing it for anybody listening that wants to understand some of that. And the, you know, in my office, just because somebody comes in who's maybe in active addiction, early recovery, long-term recovery, that doesn't mean that they're coming to see me because of that reason. You Mm -hmm. know, like that could be a factor in their life Mm -hmm. that they have a team around that. They have, you know, they have their people, they have their network, they're doing their thing and they're coming to me for relationship struggles, you know, and maybe their sobriety is a part of who they are, but they don't, they don't necessarily need or want it to be part of their therapy. They already do the work somewhere else. And so I don't, my role is never to take the role, to take the role of a sponsor, which is somebody who is um, not like a sober companion, but is also sober, who has a longer amount of time recovery wise, um, who has worked through the steps of whatever, whatever program choice they're in, um, whether that's AA, NA, um, there's a, there's a whole list of them and I won't list them all out, but, um, they have a longer sobriety time in that setting. Um, and then they are actually the person who walks through the 12 steps with with the person that has less recovery time. So whoever, whoever kind of the identified person is in this situation, the sponsor would be the one who walks alongside them. Um, the sponsor also a lot of times functions as kind of like an on-call person. So um, if I'm in early recovery and I find myself tempted or having the urge to drink or to use, I'm going to call my sponsor. You know, like I'm, I have that kind of 911 accountability person Um but then they also function as somebody who I can go to meetings with, who I can do sober activities with, who I can work the 12 steps with. Um, and sponsors have really different mentalities. Um, and so one person may have a sponsor for long chunks of time. Another person may have a sponsor just to get started and find that they may click with somebody better in a different meeting and they want that person to be their sponsor. And so it can look short-term, it can look long-term. Um, you get to kind of, find the relationships that work for you that are going to better benefit you for recovery. Well, so I really like, <clears throat> I, I mean, I don't, I don't think I, going into this, we sort of intended to, to go in this angle, but I, what I, what I love about the conversation we've had so far is it started with both you and Lindsay kind of acknowledging that your roles, d- d- that, that life threw you all kinds of interesting curveballs and experiences that end up, leading you to places where you felt your sense of calling and where this was your place to be and to practice and, and to serve others and to be part of a community. And I, I first want to just acknowledge that the richness of life is that we go through lots of, you know, what we didn't cover or uh, you know, the hard things that came along with that too, because there were, there's certainly hard challenges that are presented in life that we have to get through. And I think, so, so, I say that to say that thinking about this conversation today, I recognize that life is is a complex, interwoven set of decisions and experiences that we're trying to navigate together. You know, and sometimes those experiences lead to really fulfilling job callings and understandings of life, and and push you in directions you never thought you could go. But they also, at the same time, uh, and maybe literally at the same time, can also lead a situation where you do become using a substance to to try to 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 cope with what life is giving you and i think about you know my work working with college students how many college students get into an environment 
where they're having both things happen at the same time. They're discovering their calling. They're 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 going to school. They're getting an education that's changing the way they see the world. And at the same time, that amount of stress and the availability of substances also at the same time becomes a dependency issue and shifts their whole trajectory. And I just I guess I want to acknowledge that a lot of people get into this place of dependency out of trying to cope with, with circumstances that life presents us like a pandemic and, and trying to figure out how do you handle everything you're holding in life and this pandemic and all that's around it and the uncertainty. And so you begin to, to, to use substances to try to cope with that. And um, so I just, I think that was kind of a beautiful way to think about because it's not, uh, the reason I say this because it's not about being broken, which I think a lot of mm-hmm. people um, look at, at, using substances as, as something broken them or something they are broken or we use all the kinds of languages like that and and realize that it's just it's a confluence of lots of different factors that people end up in these places so i'm interested to to think about talking about maybe someone who's not yet in in the place of of I, I, and I, and maybe this is something you want to define like full the difference between dependency and addiction and 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 you know, over- abuse. Abuse. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah, because we talked a little about that in our last episode, and I'd love to hear a little bit about, you know, those different stages and how people kind of find themselves in that that cycle. Yeah. So I I think that they're kind of in those definitions. I think that there can be a lot of overlap. It doesn't it doesn't mean that there has to be. You know, but I think that you see a lot of maybe substance abuse um, or substance misuse, you know, like not using, especially with like Mm. opioids or prescription medications, you know, not using them correctly. Um, And so kind of a, I don't even know if I should have said this before, but kind of a background. And this, this goes back to actually a little bit of Evan and I's relationship too, on how I got into, how I got into ministry was, um, so prior to meeting Evan, um, my my sophomore year of college, um, I was sexually assaulted, and my response to that was to drink heavily. Um, I had I was not raised in the church um, at all. I had just started. I had some friends who invited me into a different campus ministry from where Evan and I had met, but I had just started kind of learning about like what a relationship with God would look like. Um, And then that sexual assault actually happened within kind of the confines of relationships through that campus ministry. Um, And so that really turned my world upside down. And um, prior to coming to college, um, I had, I had really easy access to alcohol all of the time um, in my environment. And so I knew other people around me had used it as a coping skill. I had seen people kind of, not even just numb out, but use it as like a good time. And so for me in that season, I was having a very bad time. And so kind of the natural inclination was, well, I'll just drink. Um, And it started off as I was drinking with friends and then it quickly turned into, I'm drinking by myself. Um, And I, at the time I was an RA and I feel like I can disclose all this because I had a great boss at the time who knew all of this and walked me through it. Um, but I wasn't doing a good job at, at my job. Um, I was totally failing as a student, which was not my norm. Um, I was really, I mean, falling out of friendships, falling out of commitments. And I, my, 
we call them floor partners, but my like fellow RA, my partner, um, he came to me one day and just kind of screamed at me and was like, Hey, um, I love you, but you're giving Christians a bad name, <laughs> figure it out. Like you need to either mm. stop calling yourself a Christian or you need, you need to get your stuff together because we're, we're kind of over it. Um, I didn't use kind words back to him, but it was a huge wake up call for me. Um, and in that situation, right? Like I'm going to say that there probably wasn't quite to the level of a dependency, but there was definitely some abuse happening, like definitely some alcohol abuse happening. Um, and from that moment, I chose sobriety as an option for that season. So I didn't drink for the next year. Um, and I went sober for a year and that was a commitment that I had made to him and to myself, um, because I, I had to get it together. You know, like he had stepped in and he intervened in a huge way. Um, and that guy, our friend, he's actually a mutual friend of Evan and I's Zach, um, was that person. And Zach actually introduced me to a lot of his Christian friends who were involved in ultimate frisbee, which is how I met Evan. Um, but kind of in that world, I don't, I hadn't reached a level of dependency, but I had, I had almost all of the pieces that I needed. I had a genetic predisposition. I have family members who have struggled with alcoholism. I had easy, easy access. I lived in a college town. Um, it, that is a, a, I would say more of a party school, um, because we have kind of an environment here that easily breeds areas that drinking happens, right? So we're a huge football school. That's huge tailgating. That's drink day drinking is the norm. That's how we celebrate, right? Um, and so it would have been really, it would have been really easy for Zach not to say anything, but also really easy for a lot of people not to notice that I had kind of a problem developing because I was easy. It was easy to brush it off as this is just a college student who's drinking a lot, but what college student doesn't? right. was kind of the, kind of the tagline I was giving off. Um, but I would say where, if that moment hadn't have happened, if Zach hadn't stepped in, I think it easily could have turned into, I don't know how to function now without my comfort zone of alcohol. You know, like my, that was, that was the drug of choice I was picking. And it would have been so easy for that to be my norm. Cause I could just numb out. I could control how I was feeling even if I wasn't successful, I wasn't really caring about the consequences. Right. And so um, what I will say is that I think I'm in a unique position, maybe compared to other therapists and the fact that I work in a college town. Um, and so when I work with clients who are college students, a lot of time there's, in my experience, there's a lot more resistance um, to maybe labeling it as a drinking problem or a drug problem because all my friends are doing it. It's just college. I'll quit when I graduate. You know, there aren't really consequences um, because we are, we are on a campus that I don't want to say encourages drug use, but doesn't necessarily discourage it because there's just easy access in a large population um, where with the clients that I work with who aren't college students who are, you know, young professionals or who are in their thirties or forties or fifties, I think it's easier for them to label it as a drug problem or a drinking problem or, um, a, you know, substance abuse because they're not in a world that says that's okay. You know, it's impacting their marriages. It's impacting their jobs. Um, it's, there's more visible consequences that lend to 
kind of labeling it a little bit nicely. You named well that our social contexts uh, either give us the opportunity to have more excuses for those behaviors um, and those unhealthy coping skills than other environments. Uh, if you're around a bunch of people that every Sunday you're at brunch drinking bottomless mimosas, uh, even in the young professional crowd, that that's what we do on Sundays, then um, that it, it nobody's necessarily going to call each other out or label it something because then they all label themselves. And I think that you gave a great example of how in environments, it really takes often a very close friend to be able to distinguish the difference between what everyone is doing and what we're contextually excusing. And when there's really something deeper happening. And, and I will say too, like one of the things to consider maybe as a listener that looks different, you know, for your environment is that I have a very narrow lens in the sense of I went to undergrad at UA. I did grad school at UA. I worked at UA. I, I don't, I work in Tuscaloosa now. So I'm around a huge college campus with other, with other smaller, smaller college campuses around us as well. Um, and so I have, kind of what I deal with every day, you know, are the people that I work with every day are people who are also in that environment, right? And it's not, <laughs> it's, I don't, UA is not maybe like a small Christian college, right? It's a large SEC school um, where there is a, there's a quote reason to drink or to use almost every single day if you want one, you know, like Saturdays or game days. Of course we're getting up. I mean, we're getting up super early to be to be on college game day, and then we're going to drink all day until the eight o'clock game. And then, I mean, goodness, I know Evan's a huge Bama fan, so we always win, right? And so, <laughs> then we <laughs> so then we drink. I think, I think this interview is over. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. So, <laughs> so then, right? So, but then, typically, right? We drink heavily to celebrate some win that we just had. But also on the off chance that we lose, well, now we're all pissed off. So, of course, we get to go drink, right? Like yeah, You're going to drink either way. We're going to drink either way. That's right. One's just more fun, right? Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we, we're all hungover the next day. So, of course, we're going to brunch with bottomless mimosas, right? And maybe we take Monday off, but Tuesday is a date party or Thursday is Thirsty Thursday or we're going to one of the local bars for bingo, you know, and then Friday we're just gearing up again because it's almost football day again, you know, and so it's there's always a reason to maybe for it to be socially acceptable um, in Tuscaloosa, you know, or in a, in a big college town. Um, and so, and that's not, that's not to, to Tuscaloosa to take a hit. I think that's just a college, you know, a large college town has yeah. that ability. I think that, I mean, every environment I, I work with a lot of college, I myself went to a small Christian college, um, Southern Baptist school at the time. And, and I worked with, obviously like university of georgia and large state schools too and um I, they all they all have the same affordances of 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 availability and encouraging community for substance abuse mm -hmm. i think what the one of the confounding factors i experienced at at my undergraduate was because of that christian overlay 
much of it had to be hidden. And, and it, that presents its own unique challenges because it's one thing if you can openly drink and you have a and, and you have a drinking problem and you're you're drinking a lot and you're drunk a lot. It's a whole different thing if you have to you have that same dependency, but you have to keep it hidden. Mm-hmm. And so you you drink in your dorm room late at night and get drunk and you and you go missing for a couple of days because you never leave your dorm room because you're passed out. Like and and then I think too and I I, I want to acknowledge. Um, I want to acknowledge Zach and what Zach said to you that helps you take that step. But one of the challenges I come from, I, I came up against was the religious shaming that comes along with it, that somehow you can't be Christian and have a dependency problem. Like that somehow that makes you less of a Christian if you're addicted to drugs or if you if you use or you drink or if you have premarital sex like like we have this whole la- extra layer of shame that's just poured on top like fire and so that just makes you even more resistant to becoming vulnerable and seeking help and you know i know it's not that's not exclusive to the christian community it's it's, it's part of other communities too but i certainly think that is a very important nuance that you experience, especially especially in that college environment where religiosity and your faith can be such a powerful force uh, for both good and for for harm. And I think I'm I'm really glad that you said that because I think even again, you know, my my scope is going to be pretty narrow in the sense of I've experienced this one college environment, but even even with me being in that large school that was, it would have been totally acceptable and totally, you know, socially okay for me to do that drinking. I had just entered into a world of kind of that religiosity, you know, where I felt like I needed to hide it. And so even being in an environment where it would have been okay, and I probably pushed it more than I should have. I also did that, like you were talking about, Mm -hmm. where I did it in a dorm room, or I did it by myself, or I wasn't vocal about it. And um, like a lot of people who struggle with substance abuse, I thought I was pulling it off like no one's business, right? Like nobody knew I had a drinking problem. Nobody knew that I was getting drunk by myself. I was totally rocking it and pulling it off. And in reality... I was not, you know, like I had numerous friends who, you know, would maybe kind of hint or would try to invite me to things that they knew would be sober events. And I just, I wouldn't go intoxicated. I just wouldn't go. And eventually it just got to the point where they said, they don't, they don't want to be, you know, like, we're just not going to invite you anymore. Like, we're not going to really maybe offer accountability, but we're just going to say no thanks to having you there. You don't come anyway. Yeah, just you kind know, of the deterioration of the relationship. Yeah, where um, Zach, <laughs> it'd be interesting to hear his uh, his take on it now because this is like a decade ago. Um, but I think at that point, some of it was like, yeah, some of it was more of like, I don't even know if I want to hold you accountable, but we work together and I have to. <laughs> like, <laughs> Part of it is like kind of necessity more than anything. Um, and I'm kind of just fed up, you know, with pulling pulling all the weight around here. Um, but I'm going to believe that a much larger part was him, was him being a good friend and him. He had, he was also in an environment. He was part of organizations that, you know, large amounts of alcohol were totally fine, but Zach also wasn't using it in the same way that I was. Right. Mm -hmm. So Zach would maybe consume 
<laughs> his wife is probably shaking her head somewhere right now, but like, <laughs> you know, like Zach could go out and consume a large amount of alcohol on a Saturday and be totally fine by Sunday. And, you know, was going out and getting the work done and was going, was getting ready to go to med school and was a leader for a lot of other kids in, the, in that same group that we were both part of, you know, like he was doing everything and he looked like, of like a quote normal college student who would maybe drink every so often and maybe drink more you know than what what we would call like a healthy amount right but he was doing it the way that it looked like for a normal college student and I thought oh I'm doing the same thing and that was the difference between Zach and I is we we weren't doing it the same way at Mm -hmm. all Mm -hmm. thanks Zach (laughs) uh, I mean I think I've been a part of a couple interventions and I know I mean, it's basically what you had. What he what he posed for you was really an intervention. And yeah. one of the things you do, uh, my experience at least, and you guys are far more uh, experienced in this, is that you want to appeal to the things that matter to the person you're talking about. Mm-hmm. If you're just talking about sort of things that aren't really in the periphery, that aren't really important to that person. And so it seems like he picked up that your faith tradition that you were picking up, this new thing that you were part of, was important to you. And he he shared that as a way to to try to motivate you to to seek change and and it and it worked yeah I, and what I, yeah. yeah no go ahead sorry oh i just was gonna say i just want to be clear that you can be a christian a very you can be a christian and you can still be an alcoholic and that doesn't oh, separate absolutely. you from the love of god's redemptive love for your life and that sort of thing absolutely and you know in 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 my specific experience, like Zach was one of a handful of people that knew about the sexual assault that had happened too. Uh. And so I had this friend, right. Who was also kind of carrying this weight of the secret that I had given him, you know, and him, I mean, God, looking back, I mean, like what a great friend, right. Because he could yeah. have easily been like, yeah, this is too much. Like you, it's, it's just too much. Um, and he didn't do that literally thank God, because, um, I would have lost my job. I would have, I, there was a semester where my GPA tanked, you know, like, and he, it was crazy. Like he stepped in and kind of used his connections and his resources to vouch for me. And I was not the person that needed to be vouched for, you know, like looking (laughs) on that, I was a train wreck, you know, but he didn't, he didn't let that deter him because he knew it just wasn't, it wasn't me, you know, like that wasn't his friend. That wasn't the person he knew. Um, and so for him to step in and really give me, give me opportunities that I definitely didn't deserve, um, but that he was willing to give me is huge, you know? And I think what's so, I was thinking about this on my car ride in this morning, as I was thinking about this podcast was, you know, like how many, looking back, how many times God kind of was making these moments in my life where he was like, you're going to be a therapist. You're going to be doing this. This is exactly how you're going to intervene in people's lives. And I had no idea. Right. But I mean, he set it up beautiful. I mean, it was like a T-ball swing, right? Like he put it on, he put it on the actual T for me and was just waiting for me to step up. But it was, you know, I'm going to give you an experience that you've been there before so that later on there's some empathy and it's not just sympathy, you know, and then I'm going to pull you into this environment where, Evan and kind of the crew around Evan gave me this beautiful example of like what you've, what you've experienced before church life wise, that wasn't good. That's not what all church people look like. You know, like it doesn't have to be like that. Your journey can be your own. It can look different than mine. And that's so beautiful. And then right after that, you know, like in working in campus ministry, you're basically like an untrained therapist. (laughs) Like people are just coming to you being like, I want to do life with you. And you're like, okay, 
sure, like, let's do it at Target, you know? And like, and so <laughs> you're kind of doing life, right? And then he's just setting me up so nicely to, well, now we're going to give you this opportunity to have people to do grad school with. And, you know, and then your internship is going to be, you're going to meet people there that are going to infinitely shape the way that you function as a therapist, because I'm just trying to get you to a place that you're being called to. You just don't know it yet. And it, I think that just happened in my life over and over again, not to say that's every therapist story. Cause I don't, I don't think that it is. Um, but looking back, you know, that's, and that's not unique to a therapist either. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's, that's, that is part of the recovery process also, you know, like where did this, where did this lead to, um, you know, like what is, what is kind of the purpose of recovery or what was the purpose of addiction or kind of what function did it serve? Because that's not the end, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just, I'm an addict period end of story. That's where the story closes. There's just so much more, you know, where those experiences allow allow people who get sober and who stay sober to then right empathize as sponsors or to empathize as friends and not just say, wow, that sounds really scary or sucky, or I've never been there before. That sucks that you struggled with addiction by, you know, like it <laughs> yeah. allows the, the whole purpose of kind of these 12 step programs allows people to empathize and not just sympathize, but to actually say I've been there. And a lot of times it's been worse. You know, and I survive and so can you. And that will wrap it up for part one of this talk. Tune in with us next week as we continue our conversation with Greer around the steps towards sobriety. If you haven't already subscribed to us on social media, our handle for Facebook and Instagram is at the not alone pod. To find out more about Michael and Evan's work in campus ministry, you can find them on the UM Commission's website at www.umcommission.org. And if you want to find out more about Lindsay's professional counseling services, you can go to www.seedsofhopecounseling.org. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.